Hello, everyone. Welcome back. So, Casey, again today we are talking about another book. How exciting! How oh. exciting! I know a book that you in particularly enjoyed, *The Digital Border*. Absolutely. So, yeah, I, I, Jamil, I've invited you on this impromptu graduate seminar. Yes, yes. Lots of books to read for preparation in this podcast. Mm -hmm. Yes. And we've been talking about. So um, th this uh, conversation today intersects with conversations we've had on the podcast about um, immigration, um, about identity. About uh, technology. Uh, certainly about technology. Um, absolutely. So really excited to, to add this, this one to the mix and also having our first international guest on the podcast. Yes, our first international guest. Look at us. We Americans are known for being fairly insular, um, and it's about time we, we break out of that yes, bubble a little bit. We're reaching out the bubble, and we're talking to our colleagues across the pond. Mm -hmm. So today we have with us um, two scholars uh, from the London School of Economics. We have Lily Kuliaraki and Miria Georgiou, um, who are both professors of communication, media and communications um, and are authors of numerous books. Uh, most recently, uh, the new book we're talking about today, out from NYU Press, The Digital Border, Migration, Technology, and Power. It really is an incredible book. It's a rich, rich um, text, and we have tons to talk about with these two today. So, Lily and Miria, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, to start out, um, you know, you both have, have authored a number of books. You've done a lot of, of work around migration, around um, technology, media, spectatorship, um, visual communication. So, what is it that led you to this project, just as 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 people? You know, what what got to this um, point for you? Um, shall I start, Miriam? Yeah, um, yeah, just to say, uh, you know, my, my uh, kind of deep interest as a, as a scholar and the thing I have been doing in the past 20 years is I have, I've, I've been studying um, human suffering mm. as a problem of communication. So how do we represent bodies in, pay, in pain on paper or on screen? What are the histories of these mediations? What are the debates around them? What does it mean to kind of uh, represent suffering um, uh, for the sufferers themselves and for us who witness their pain? So this is really the starting point for me um, um, for this particular book, The Digital Border, uh, because as uh, the kind of entry point um, into the um, our study was the um, big migration move, the arrival of almost a million um, migrants and, and refugees in, uh, in Europe in 2015, uh, one of the things that um, kind of um, struck me um, the most was that these people were people uh, who were uh, fleeing war, they mm -hmm. were fleeing death, uh, they were suffering on the way to Europe, they were suffering and dying in the dinghies that were transporting them from Turkey to, um, to the Greek islands, and they were suffering when they, were, they arrived in the, in the continent uh, by the ways, the different ways in which they were uh, mistreated, they were misrecognized, 
um, and they were uh, to a large extent um, restricted hmm. um, in their movements and the choices they'd make. So that was uh, my starting point. I wanted to absolutely make a, a kind of a case about um, what um, the European media were doing hmm. to the populations. Um, my starting point was in, in some ways um, uh, similar, in some ways different. Uh, there's a strong um, biographical element, autobiographical element in mm. my interest on migration, borders, and ethnic conflict, uh, which I think is the uh, is where I start from. So I grew up in a tiny part of the world called Cyprus, mm. um, as island in Eastern Mediterranean, which has been divided for decades uh, from, um, by uh, war and ethnic conflict. Mm. Um, and so I've grown up to be very much aware of the violence of war, but also how um, the way that we understand or we misunderstand each other might shape our perceptions of the self, uh, but also how it might shape hostility against others, which very often is uh, it, it traps us in situations that uh, are, are, are difficult for everyone, both for us who feel constantly under threat by others, but also, of course, for the others, the, the people who might be on the other side of the border, who might be suffering um, uh, from these same experiences of war or other experiences of war and um, an ethnic conflict. So, um, so for years and since the beginning of my academic life, I, I, I developed a keen interest on ethnicity and migration huh. and questions of borders and identity. Um, so this project was in many ways uh, the most recent uh, point in my own trajectory of thinking about what happens when people experience ethnic ethnic uh, conflict, and when very often they are trying to avoid that by traveling, by migrating. Mm -hmm. um, and what happens at the beginning, at the middle, and at the end point of migration? And I think this book is precisely that, um, us trying to understand what happens when um, uh, people are forced, uh, uh, forced to leave their countries of origin, and then what are the opportunities, and what is the uh, the hope that they, uh, uh, their experience or their dream of migrating into places of safety, uh, what do these involve? And actually, what is the reality that they find? And of course, now more than ever, both the dreams, the hopes and the disappointment that come with, uh, with crossing borders and migration are so closely attached to the way we communicate, mm -hmm. to the way that people might find uh, uh, information about what migrating mean, but of course for the people who are receiving them, also living in this in this world where we get so much, when we get to know so much about others, but very often we think we know so much when we know so little. Mm. Wow. And, you know, one thing that I, I thought was really uh, remarkable and that's important, I mean, I my background is in, in rhetoric and communication, um, and, you know, so we study how language and symbols uh, shift power, shift the way that, that we see people and, and treat people. Um, but I think less often what I've seen in, in the field of, of, you know, critical communication studies is the fieldwork component. A lot of times we're studying media representations. We're studying, um, we're, we're doing that sort of form of research. And the, the way that you all are bringing together both um, what you're calling the territorial border um, and the symbolic border, and then looking at the digital, you know, in both spaces, I think that the, the fieldwork component really complicates what we might think 
if we were just looking at the the symbolic. So, um, you know, the you start the book with field work that you did. Um, we both did in, in 2015 um, at the territorial border. And I'm wondering if you all could talk a little bit about, you know, what was that experience like? Um, what did you discover? What was surprising to you? What did you witness? I am, as I said earlier, a, a, um, a scholar of mediated suffering. And uh, most of my um, kind of um, research trajectory really covers what in the book we call the symbolic border. Um, so um, I have um, also engaged in, you know, processes of fieldwork, you know, when I, with an ethnographic sensibility, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, but, but not really that often, mm-hmm. uh, certainly not, uh, you know, in the kind of regularity and intensity that Miria does. Um, but I did actually um, uh, join in the, um, the fieldwork in Nikios. In um, in uh, 2015, and I have to say that this has been one of the most um, intense and unforgettable mm. experiences that I've had as a, as a scholar. Um, so um, I would say that perhaps the most important um, thing that um, I, I, I I can kind of uh, communicate about that moment was the um, the kind of the distinction between what the media told us that is happening um, in terms of constructing the whole event as a crisis, uh-huh. um, but also in terms of speaking about those people, um, not as sufferers, but as victims. And there is a difference, I mm. think, there in terms of, of, of which words we use. Suffering is about having gone into a process that um, has left you open to violence, has harmed you in some way, and you're acting against that or acting to um, overcome or escape that. But being a victim is something completely different, as, as you can see also in the kind of the analysis that we have eventually of the news, which is, is someone who is passive and agentless, someone who is inactive in the face of their suffering. So the thing that I'm coming back to fieldwork now, the thing that really impressed me was to see that gap between those representations and what we saw um, in the field. So um, on the one hand, we saw um, difficult circumstances, yes, because uh, the the arrivals of um, migrants and um, and refugees on the island was a challenge for a small Greek island in a country that was already bankrupt at the time and was struggling through the euro crisis as well. So there were definitely challenges and difficulties, but we also saw um, a kind of a a. a, a a reception center and processes within it that um, did not seem to push those people to the absolute limit. So I would say that there was a gap between the kind of panic, um, uh, panic activating rhetoric of the crisis and what we 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 found um, uh, on on location. On the one hand, there was also a big uh, UN camp where people were regularly um, kind of passing through and getting um, food and, um, and and hospitality and support. Um, there were local um, um, uh, solidarity groups that were also um, offering uh, whatever they could to kind of sustain those people in their longer trip. 
through Europe and uh, to the countries where they, they wanted to go. So there was a gap between the kind of, as I said, the crisis on the one hand and the reality on the ground, without saying that that reality, that reality was not challenging for that context. And on the other hand, there was another gap on the one hand between the, con the idea of these people as victims mm. and the agency, uh, the creative agency, the courage and the... Um, um, you know, the will that these people had in terms of overcoming all the difficulties to be able to um, uh, register, get, you know, through the processes of identification, et cetera, et cetera, and then travel through uh, the rest of the country and into the destinations that they were aiming for. So for me, that was um, both a, you know, big eye opener, but also um, a very moving experience and an experience that um, I will, you know, I will not, uh, I will not forget. Well, yeah, ain't that something? Um, for those that may be unfamiliar with your work, um, how do you really define some of these basic concepts, like the digital border, the territorial border, the symbolic border? How do you define and talk about those concepts for those that have not yet read the book? Uh, so, um, well, you know, the idea of the digital border really tries to capture, um, you know, the, the current reality of a much older process. And that is the process of dividing spaces and people in terms of an inside and an outside. And I think that's a kind of core, a core definition of what a border is or how it works. Um, so now this is a process of controlling the movement of people from one territory or another, to another, a nation state to another, what we call the territorial border. But it is also a process of controlling the stories we tell about those people on the move and what, what we call the symbolic border, you know, who these people are, what they are doing here, you know, with us, what the implications of having them here might mean, et cetera, et cetera, all, all the kind of storytelling around that. So this is a kind of basic distinction between the territorial and the and the symbolic uh, uh, border. Now, our argument is also that the control and classification of migrants, migrant movement, and of migrant storytelling um, does not start and stop at the entry point, you know, the outer border, let's say the, the Kia's center of registration and identification of, of migrants. Um, but it continues inside the territories where migrants move, what we call the inner border. Um, and that is a control of where they live, how they live, whether they live in the way that we want them to live, uh, but also a control of who speaks for them, right? So it's, it's also you know, a symbolic process. And whether they are allowed to speak, where are they allowed to speak, and, and, and what to say. So um, the digital border is everywhere, really. Well, that's very interesting to think of, like, who's allowed to speak for that population? When are they allowed to speak in which spaces? Um, I don't think often, as the general public, we think about people in this way. Yeah, and in, you know, in terms of, of the, the territorial border, I mean, like, typically, you know, when we think about a border between nation states, like, there are images that come to our minds, um, checkpoints, um, guards, cameras, you know, security, fences, walls, um, a whole series of apparatuses. But that would be, you know, what we might call the outer border. Um, and I, I lived um, for a number of years in New Mexico in the southwest of the U.S., which is a border uh, state with Mexico. And I was struck um, 
you know, I lived hours from the border, um, but, you know, I we would go through checkpoints. And I thought, man, we are 100 miles from the border, and we're going through a border checkpoint. Um, and we're seeing the helicopters, and we're seeing um, Border Patrol, you know, roaming the hills. Nowhere near what you, we would think of as, as traditionally the border. And then, you know, of course, in the United States now we have – we have ICE um, and we have local police departments participating in um, monitoring people. So the border really exists anywhere that people are, as does the digital, as does technology. Um, and I don't know that, I mean, certainly the people who are thinking about this the most are those who are most implicated in which they're thinking about it every day um, who, or who are working in these areas. And um, I also, I, I'd really... I was going to wait till the end to to talk more about this, but truly, as it it was reading this this book that's so focused on the the 2015 European migration crisis. I mean, I'm a scholar. I I read the news. I pay attention to what's going on, um, and I it just struck me how American uh, my lens is and my media mm-hmm. consumption traditionally, including um, news, not always, but and what a what a filtered view that is. I mean, we all have different, you know, filters depending on where we are, but just, you know, thinking about like, what is the role of the United States in these global, um, with just increasing numbers of global migrants um, and just feeling the territorial distance from this, this crisis in 2015 and, and remembering some of the images that, that you all talk about, some of the stories, but really how little, you know, we, we truly knew, know, knew, or were involved in. Um, that just, that really struck me in reading this book, which is part of why I think it's so important that we talk um, about this today. And just just to say um, uh, that, unfortunately, I mean, what we uh, found out as well and what we keep finding out in our research is that it's not only the American audiences that have so mm-hmm. little funding of the plight of refugees, refugees who might be, in, in the case of the book, of course, those who are coming primarily from uh, the Middle East, Africa, and Afghanistan. Uh, but of course, the stories that ha- of people who are um, violently uprooted from across Latin America, for uh-huh. example, now, of course, Ukraine. So what uh, your observation about how little do I know beyond some uh, of the core narratives of that I see in American uh, American uh, media is a story that is so well known, I think, for many Western audiences. And, and if, if I may uh, say an anecdote from my recent research in uh, uh, Poland and Ukraine, one of the striking um, uh, uh, moments uh, while I was doing research uh, about a month ago at the Polish and Ukrainian border was when we were talking to a Polish um, a Polish mayor on the, uh, whose town is very close to the border. Hmm. And he was describing uh, to us how he had this moment when he was terrified because he saw a group of men walking, walking through the border towards his town. And this was a group of men that, as he described hmm. them, they were dark and bearded. Hmm. And the thought that came to his mind was, oh, my God, are we turning into Southern Europe? with all these men coming from the Mediterranean. Hmm. And of course, this is striking. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, and disturbing in many ways, but we know exactly where these images are coming from. These are precisely the images that we see again and again in the media reproduce that shape the way that we imagine the world. Mm -hmm. And we shape the way that we imagine migration also as a threat to societies and make us think that migration is something else about people who are not like us and uh, from which we have to protect ourselves. Right. I've been really struck listening to um, NPR coverage, for example, of, of Ukraine and how in-depth the reporting is and how, you know, just in one story, they'll talk to a number of different um, teenagers who all have different sort of points of view and they care about different things because, you know, they're full human beings. And just in recognizing that, not, I mean, not to say that it's not also partial, um, but looking at, oh, this is what it looks like for someone to to be granted a just basic fullness of humanity and how often other people are lumped together just as masses of people or just as victims. Um, Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, what we talk about that process in the book as a process of bordering, right? Mm. Any discourse that that is articulated around um, those who uh, stand at the border and go through a process of classification, are they in or are they out? Every time we make a statement about where they belong and whether they belong to us or others, we call that an act of or a practice of bordering. Mm. And I think if we if we um, kind of continue kind of conversation, um, <clears throat> you started off in a kind of Miriam uh, developed earlier. Um, I would say that the biggest um, contrast in terms of the uh, contemporary Ukraine crisis crisis in in quotation marks and 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 that of 2015 is is precisely the different attitude the different discourse that is being produced around those two different groups of 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 of, of refugees the, whereas back in 2015 we had that constant othering mm. that constant kind of um it almost dehumanization of 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 uh, um, uh, migrants and refugees coming from countries that were not Western, mm-hmm. even though we knew very well um, that they were coming from a war zone in Syria, but also other areas with their own histories of violence um, in the Middle East and elsewhere, uh, we were not willing to grant them the kind of symbolic humanity that we grant now to uh, to uh, um, you know the Ukraine population that is fleeing war um, and which is of course considered more quintessentially uh, European. So mm-hmm. here we can see how bordering creates hierarchies of life, um, and and how those hierarchies, as as Miria said earlier, are part of what we already take for granted in our talk and in our writing about migrant uh, populations. We don't even consider it. It's what in the book we call the imaginary, the, the migration crisis imaginary. It's, it's, it's the order of discourse, just to use a kind of Foucault term, fancy term to say, it's that order of discourse that defines or delineates what we think, uh, what, uh, you know, the sphere of the thinkable, let me put it that mm. way. The sphere within which everything can be said but beyond which we cannot imagine what things might be might be like, hmm. and uh, and for for the Ukrainians we don't have a crisis. It's it's not thinkable to think of what is happening now in Ukraine as an unstoppable wave of dangerous people entering our continent. That was uh, the imaginary for the Syrian 
and other uh, migrants and refugees that were coming into Europe in 2015. That concept of bordering is very helpful because I, I also hear that narrative of, well, the Ukrainians, they're like us. They have iPhones. Yes. They care about prom. They, mm -hmm. you know, very um, sort of surface level uh, Western European ways of identifying with people. But it's very much so they're like us which is not what we saw with the African students um, and their treatment. But that, that idea of any time that you're saying that, you know, you're like me or, or distinguishing an inside from an outside, a self from an other, that idea of bordering. Yes. It's a useful way to think about it. I'm also, you know, I've been reflecting about this all day about ways in which we get to see those stories through their own eyes. Mm. Like um, I was talking with Casey, I, I get the New York Times every weekend, and the Ukrainian crisis is always on the front cover, and it has been for months. And it's very surface-level information, you know, maps and what has happened and counts and numbers. But I remember for a short period of time on TikTok, because, you know, I'm, I've been obsessed with TikTok lately. It's, I, it's digital. It's there digital. You know. It's digital mm -hmm. social media, and I've been obsessed with it. But for a short period of time, we were getting all these videos on my For You page about the crisis through their lens, like people uploading videos about how they were feeling, about what was happening outside their house, taking us to the grocery store. They were doing TikTok dances, getting ready and putting their uniforms on. And I think there was a level of humanity there by seeing their everyday life through this crisis, through their lens. And seeing their humor, seeing their sadness, and seeing their reality. Um, I also remember of a really viral video that went by of an older lady handing a Russian soldier sunflower seeds and then making this really profound statement about, like, something happens to you, at least flowers will grow from this spot. So even seeing really strong messages coming out of the Ukrainian people, but from their lens, and seeing all of it, you know, from good to bad to everything in between, I think um, allowed, I know me and a lot, I think a lot of the people watching to relate in a way in which you wouldn't have traditionally through reading it in the newspaper. It made it feel realer because um, often these conflicts are happening somewhere far away, somewhere far away. And you don't necessarily know what's happening. You know things are bad, but it doesn't really feel real until you see it like that. Yeah, that, that, that was um, uh, that was precise. I mean, you captured it uh, very well. How different um, is uh, the understanding of uh, war or migration or uprooting or suffering when you hear um, the sufferers or the actors of war uh, speaking themselves? So one of the core um, uh, decisions that we made on this book was to uh, make justice to all the different, do justice to all the different actors of migration. And it was a very important ethical, of course, and political commitment as well as scholarly commitment to, um, to integrate in our analysis the voices primarily of migrants, uh, the people who are so rarely uh, getting mm -hmm. the chance to speak, but of course also the voices of activists and volunteers, some other actors who are playing an important role in these ways that um, uh, uh, that migrants are being received at or uh, after they cross uh, the border. And of course, a, a key element of the digital border is precisely 
the different technologies that are now available to everyone, right? So uh, digital technologies, on the one hand, are used by the state to create data profiles mm -hmm. for everyone, uh, to create much more rigid structures of control of people's mobility. But these are also the same technologies that migrants themselves use to create their own archives, archives of war, uprooting of a new life. So um, the, their smartphones become like a pocket-sized archive mm -hmm. that they carry with them of a whole life. Um, and they are also technologies that allow them to speak to different uh, audiences and take center stage, at least momentarily, when they create their own uh, stories, like the ones that you mentioned coming from Ukraine. So it was very important for us to bring those voices uh, in center stage to remember that the digital border might be a site of control that expands more and more across territories, across uh, more and more media spaces, but actually it's never a closed space. It's not a never a closed space of full control of people's lives and voices. I, I so appreciated that, that part of the book about it and about um, at Kaios, the, the, the fact that the human beings in physical space together still really matters that a lot of times there's this narrative or fear of, of that total control um, or a total surveillance, but that actually in practice, that's not, that's not fully, what you're seeing and and I'm I'm one who's often terrified by technology and algorithms and um surveillance digital surveillance um and well like we can't deny that that's an outlet for critical communication creative expression um connection uh, archiving you know photojournalism um citizen type journalism um and that was such a good Reminder to me that also that that's that's an area where, like, how can we guarantee that people have access to those technologies and limit the the state surveillance and the monitoring while still allowing the emancipatory potentials of those technologies? No, absolutely. I mean, for us, it was also a <clears throat> a kind of a core decision that we made early on that we were not going to talk about. Uh, the digital border that is often presented precisely as a new totalizing mechanism of absolute subjection, exclusion, and dehumanization. We were not going to do that. Um, and that we were going to introduce a kind of, if you like, a more dialectical perspective where resistance always comes with the forms of control that are being exercised upon the kind of migrant and refugee population in the inner and the outer border, territorial and, and the symbolic border. But having said that, and, 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 and having made that one of the kind of a driving forces of our narrative, we were also, I think, very clear. And, and, and I think that also comes through um, in the narrative um, of our book, the ultimately uh, the, 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 the practices of re resistance are momentary they are fleeting, they can be um, decisive at certain points, but they are always, um, um, if you like, um, embedded within activist uh, networks that do a lot to protect migrants and refugees from precisely the kind of um, surveillance and, and, uh, of, of the state and the punitive 
orientation of the state towards those populations. So the, you know, the kind of what we call the techno-symbolic assemblage of the border with the biometric measurements, surveillance cameras, databases, you know, in job centers or wherever else migrants um, um, end up going in order to kind of build a life um, in, 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 the, in, the, in their new communities, um, or whether it is social media, um, those, um, uh, those practices are real threats for those populations. And, and when they try to resist them, they resist them uh, tactically and momentarily, but the, the, the power relations are always there. And they are always there. They need to be always deconstructed and criticized again from the beginning, every time. You know, the, this, this ties in what we've already been talking about with ways that the book complicates um, traditional binaries of that, that migrants, immigrants, refugees um, are often sorted into the deserving and undeserving, legitimate, illegitimate, um, the victim versus threat the, right the victim versus the villain yep entrepreneur versus parasite mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i'm wondering if you all could talk about how did you you also did did work um in interior in cities um in europe looking at you know migrants at activist networks job centers like you mentioned um and and looking at i'm particularly i guess interested in the the idea of the entrepreneur because the the successful um immigrant or the reason why oh you know we should celebrate and and you know take care of migrants is because you know of their entrepreneurial quote-unquote nature um and there's often that frame that's one side of of a, a binary that i'm wondering if you all could talk a little bit about yeah yeah it, it was very interesting actually that this idea that we're talking about entrepreneurial securitization so that frame this uh, narrow frame through which very often migrants are shaped once they uh, um, settle or try to settle in uh, uh, western cities um, are subjected to so the, what was interesting was that this uh, importance of entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurship emerged very inductively and through people's own words. Mm. So once we went into uh, European cities and spoke to, uh, to migrants and refugees, we heard repeatedly people expressing this anxiety that I have to perform I have to uh, stand on my um, own uh, feet. I have to be successful. I have to be an example for every other refugee. And sometimes, of course, also this came with pride that people said, oh, I have succeeded. I have my own shop. Um, my picture is on the paper because I made it. So the, the, there is a sense that people are very well aware that their recognition as human beings is equal human beings as uh, uh, Western people is subjected to them constantly proving who they are. And of course, this constantly proving through who they are comes a lot through that logic of the market. So you have to be successful. Uh, this ideal, this dream that if you can make it in the market, you can make it everywhere. So we will respect you. Of course, this, as Lily said before, the success of people is always conditioned under uh, to so many forms of exclusion, right? And what we saw again and again is that most people fail to fulfill this ideal uh, 
um, uh, that ideal refugee image or the good migrant uh, uh, figure. But almost all of them we spoke to are very well aware that they're expected to act as entrepreneurs of themselves and more and more to act as entrepreneurs of themselves by using also digital communication to produce digital pro, uh, uh, content, to become digital professionals, uh, to make it out there as digital savvy subjects. And it's a very difficult position to be people that have to prove themselves all the time you can imagine how it is you know you never take a break and for some people and many people in the margins life is often like that you can never take a break because when you do this is when you become more vulnerable yeah it's tying people's humanity to their ability to succeed in this new place in this new world yeah, exactly. Exactly that. And if, if it is not that, then what we see, and I think you saw that also also in, in the in our analysis of the um you know news journalism. Um it's it's what you said earlier, right? They are either trapped in the kind of entrepreneurial ideal um, that is offered to them as the only way in which they can reclaim a sense of humanity in the in, in the communities where they settle, or uh, predominantly, what we see in the news is that they are trapped into, you know, on the one hand, being victims. And the victim is, as I said earlier, is not the sufferer. It's a particular kind of sufferer who is powerless and inactive and devoid of agency or as threat. Mm -hmm. So if they have agency, that's a, a kind of a dangerous agency. Right. You know, they threaten our social order. You know, they're terrorists or our cultural, um, uh, our cultural uh, co coherence. You know, they're mm. too different to live amongst us. And in fact, in our research, we saw how these core themes alternated actually uh, by the book almost, depending on the moment. Hmm. I don't know if you recall that after the death of Alan Kurdi, the three-year-old boy hmm. that was found and photographed in, in a beach in Turkey, we had an impressive way of empathy hmm. uh, with um, those who were arriving on the Greek shores. Um, and that was in September, early September 2015. But just two months later, in November 2015, um, after the Paris um, attacks, this mm. humanitarian sensibility was replaced overnight, literally overnight, right. with a suspicious sensibility where migrants now became a source of terrorism mm -hmm. and they should be stopped. From, from reaching Europe. So, you know, there's a, a representational trap there. Yes. You know, whether victims or threats, they're always outsiders. They mm. are always others. They'll never be um, like us, right? So there's no complexity to those people. Mm. You know, there's no history for them. There's no individual biographies. There is, um, you know, these people have no emotional depth. Um, they're not humans. Mm. And what precarity, too, to be um, just whipped between these two poles um, in which you're still, you know, even I, I just thought it was such an important point, too, throughout the book that the idea that, you know, if we look at like um, really awful anti-migrant rhetoric and if we look at, you know, humanitarian, um, we should take care of these poor people like those as two opposites, still it flattens the experience um, of and, and people's individual humanity and individual stories. And, and just because 
you know, like those are not permanent conditions um, that the same person or the same people can go from being, um, you know, victim to threat and back um, without any sort of change on, on, on their behalf. But in terms of how we see folks, depending on, you know, that it was it's such a great example um, that you give between the, the three-year-old on the beach and then the, the terrorist attacks that it, it fundamentally shifts public opinion and, and ways that people are, are literally treated. Yeah, I think this concept, there's so many examples globally of mm -hmm. this happening throughout time. Um, I'm loving how we're using this concept of othering too, how we are constantly looking at other groups of people when saying these are the outsiders and this is how they should interact or not interact with our communities. This is who we should let in, this is who we should not let in. Um, and how does that impact those that live in that community? Do the people in that community even have the same say about these said groups? Um, are they coming from particular members of communities versus others? Um, this is some really interesting work. Mm. And the, also the stress really came through in the book of that pressure to perform. Mm -hmm. And to, I mean, I'm, I'm married to a native U.S. born entrepreneur and she's stressed out every day. I cannot even imagine... Um, fleeing war and violence, being in a new place, new language, new culture, and having feeling that pressure to have to to set up a, a business and be self sufficient um, in a system that really isn't set up for folks to be self sufficient successfully. That's right. And one of the concepts that we use is that of performative refugeeness mm -hmm. because see. Again, how uh, with this lack of space for people to act in their full complex and contradictory humanity, uh, people are constantly under this pressure to perform the refugee. So again, it's striking how, I, how aware migrants and refugees are of those narrow spaces mm -hmm. through which they're allowed to speak and to act. Uh, but again, as you said yourself, this is a very painful position to be. And of course, in the long run, it's unsustainable for any human being to be under this pressure. I'm wondering, you know, as we as we wrap up this um, conversation, I'm wondering if you all could share um, examples, even if they were fleeting or ephemeral, of activist networks or of, of good examples of ways that, that communities or cities um, have truly welcomed people and supported them, um, or how they might? Um, I'm, I'm thinking what comes to mind is the uh, Arabic Library of Berlin. Mm. And it comes to mind because, uh, and I want to mention this example for two reasons. First of all, because it captures the welcome of the city uh, itself. So uh, the Berlin a public library opened its space to uh, young Arabs who wanted to set up a library and, and cultural space uh, soon after uh, the beginning of the so-called crisis. So we see a city that um, in many ways, unlike the nation, seems to much more immediately and in, a, in effective ways uses culture and knowledge to create those spaces of welcome. But also, I think this is a very important example because we see migrants themselves becoming the core agents of the story of what city as a space of conviviality and understanding means. Mm. So it's not just 
the right uh, uh, European uh, activists that are there, the right European volunteers that are there to create those spaces of safety, uh, communication and recognition. Once this group of young people were given uh, this infrastructure, they, they created a space, which was a space of knowledge, a space where they put up cultural events that were open to everyone. And this created that community, that community in the city mm. that both those uh, arriving and those receiving could come together and speak to each other and largely speak to each other through the language of knowledge, of mm. books, of music. Mm. And I think this was really um, um, a fundamental point to see a, a, a key example to put forward again, to see the agency and the voice of migrants themselves who can lead that story of multicultural cities and cities that can be spaces, not of hostility, but spaces of collaboration. Mm. Um, and we talked ex extensively about um, um, between us was the um, spontaneous solidarity, what in the book we call the kind of uh, the sphere of compassionate activism uh, in terms of the outer border in, on the island of Chios when we arrived there. Because what we saw were those, um, amongst other things, of course, were those kind of uh, completely kind of spontaneously organized groups of, 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 of local people, people who lived in, in Chios and who, um, you know, in the face of the, of the um, you know, arrivals that they saw coming um, in, their, on the, in their shores, uh, at all times of the day, particularly uh, in the early hours in the, of the morning, about three or four or five o'clock in the morning, um, they uh, got together and they started cooking, they started making coffee and tea and, and bought cakes and biscuits, and they organized kind of... Um, um, clothes donations and um, and all of that so that and they were there in the shores uh, in the, by the beaches and they were waiting for those dinghies to come to give them a cup of tea or to help them change you know clothes or, or you know give them the choice to kind of um, see whether they want to um, change into new dry clean clothes um, and uh, and just the way in which they embraced those people you know those strangers mm -hmm. right um, kind of was another glimpse of um, a practice um, of solidarity where you see that those that are in the media are, are, are systematically dehumanized are actually received in their full humanity or or at least in the humanity that those local people were able to um, to kind of uh, grant them at the time. That, there was also gray areas there, of course, because um, those, you know, Greek... Um, um, uh, people um, also had their own preconceptions of you know what they are going to see, but but you can also say that those were moments of uh, precisely a solidarity activism that we um, we didn't see much of um, in uh, you know in, in in the course of of, of that so-called crisis in the media at the time. Such a beautiful place to land. That is such a beautiful place to land. I think, you know, when you think about radical imagining, to imagine a place in the world where we are welcoming our neighbors and we are tending to each other and we are serving folks for their fullest selves, I think is a really wonderful idea to think of. So before we go... Where can folks find your book? Um, the, the book is coming out by NYU Press in June. Uh, so it's available in 
uh, in all bookstores and of course online, the easiest way to get access to it is through the NYU Press uh, website. Beautiful. So wherever books is sold, make sure you buy The Digital Border, Migration Technology and Power. Miria, Lily, thank you so much for this conversation today. Yes. And thank you for your incredible book and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for reading it so attentively. It's, uh, it's so nice to, to hear that you found it interesting in the other side of the pond as well, on the other side. And what a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for the great questions and for letting us have that, that mm. kind of discussion with you. It's been, it's been a great experience. Thank you so much. 